Welcome once again to Secret Police. In this eighth episode of our Russia series, we are going to wrap up the early years of the KGB and explore some of the Cold War tension in Berlin, uprising in Hungary, KGB activities in the US civil rights movement, and the first visit of a Russian leader to the US. Khrushchev toured across the United States, met real Americans, and we missed a golden opportunity for photos of Khrushchev and Mickey Mouse ears. What were Khrushchev's limits when it came to liberalizing the Soviet Union? How did the US and USSR back away from the brink of nuclear war? Why was Khrushchev not allowed at Disneyland? You're listening to the Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. And I'm on a mission to help us build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. My name is Jack, and I spend hours researching and engaging with my morbid curiosity of dictatorships and share with you the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. We look at how secret police enforce tyranny and strike fear in their people. A couple announcements before we get started. A colleague of mine will be climbing Mount Rainier in Washington State this July for the American Lung Association's Climb for Clean Air program. It's a fundraising event for lung cancer awareness, patient care, and research. She's raised nearly $6,000 for the event, which will all go to the American Lung Association. You can donate at action.lung.org slash go to slash Annie, and I'll post the link in the episode description. If I sound different today, well, I've been battling a cold and I feel like shit, but I can push myself through this recording today. Uh, Do it for the pod and the people. Remember to give the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and please subscribe so you don't miss when the episodes drop. I have a full docket for you guys for the rest of this month. Uh, Plus, according to my analytics, I have a couple hundred followers on both Apple and Spotify, but only 21 ratings on Apple and 18 on Spotify. Uh, I know we can get this up because you guys have been very generous with your attention, and I'm sure you can be equally generous with your stars. Please and thank you. Um, In fact, I'll sweeten the deal. If you guys get me to 30 ratings on either Apple or Spotify, whichever comes first, I will share a very dumb and embarrassing story about myself in the following episode that has to do with BB guns and wasps. You can support the show at patreon.com slash secret police podcast. If you're uncomfortable with giving monthly, I do take one-time donations via the PayPal link on secretpolicepodcast.com. Now let's get this show on the road. Last episode, we did a deep dive into the KGB's leadership and their tactics. The early KGB was first led by Ivan Serov, former commissar of the NKVD, then the more intellectual Shalepin who led a young communist youth organization, and then Semichesny, who was increasingly unhappy with the leadership of Nikita Khrushchev. The KGB was organized into distinct directorates, each with specific functions and regions of authority. The KGB was very, very good at infiltrating foreign governments. India was likely their test case for developing infiltration strategies and tactics. The KGB was active in Japan, Angola, and Cuba, and other nations in each of the continents. Well, except for maybe Antarctica, but... The KGB was active in the United States as well. 
William Fisher, a.k.a. Rudolf Abel, lived in New York City as a photographer and handler of KGB agents stealing U.S. nuclear secrets. The stealing nuclear secrets weren't the only nefarious activities the KGB involved themselves with in America. They found opportunities to divide our culture on issues of race as they were at the time. The, the racial issues, that is. Now, to be fair, this is low-hanging fruit to exploit in the U.S., if you don't know anything about America, and there are a lot of truly great things about this country, don't get me wrong, but we have, how you say, a complicated relationship with the concept of race. Racial tensions in the United States culminated in the civil rights movement, which sought to eliminate legalized institutional uh, racial segregation, discrimination, and disenfranchisement of black Americans. There were bad and less than scrupulous actors looking for a violent solution to America's ongoing issues with race. The Panthers and the, K, uh, the KKK, better known as the, the Ku Klux Klan, well, maybe not better known. I think they're better known as the KKK, actually. Um, but, but those two groups are just to name a few. Um, but an eloquent and passionate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. favored nonviolent methods to gain civil rights for black Americans. I can tell you one thing. The KGB licked their lips and rubbed their palms at the opportunity to exploit these tensions. The KGB initiated Operation Pandora. Their mission was to spark a race war that would tear the United States apart, leaving the Soviet Union as the sole global hegemon. Does KGB involvement cheapen the meaning of the civil rights movement or make it flawed? Not at all, in my opinion. And, and let me make this abundantly clear. The KGB were not providing support out of a sense of altruism, solidarity, or care for black people. I really don't think the KGB as an institution gave a damn about black Americans. They cared about the preservation of the Soviet system, and that meant destroying the enemy. The enemy being, well, us. The KGB saw uh, race relations in the U.S. as an opportunity to just rock our boat and sow division. Take, for example, when in 1957, the Arkansas governor, Orval um, Faubus, ordered National Guard troops to block the entry of nine black students to Central High School in Little Rock. Little Rock, Arkansas, and the first phase of the trouble. The white population are determined to prevent colored students from going to the school their own children attend. Picketing the school, they clash with the police. The law of the land decrees integration of white and colored schoolchildren. But racial feeling still runs high in the southern states of America, as shown by these pictures taken by an amateur cameraman. The law of the land is rejected. A near riot developed, so the police made a number of arrests among the ringleaders of the white pickets. Later, the Central High School, Little Rock Storm Center, was sealed off by orders of the governor, who called out the state national guard. The event made headlines around the world, and we basically did the work for the Soviets for them, making ourselves look like bigoted dickheads. One newspaper headline in the Soviet Union read, Troops March Against Children. Others called American democracy a facade. And if the U.S. government had any hope of swaying developing nations to the West, well, African nations were shaking their heads in disgust. The KGB weren't just uh, blaring propaganda from across the Atlantic, though, they played a bigger role in American racial tensions. Historian Christopher Andrew and Vasily Mitrokin demonstrate in their book called The Sword and the Shield 
that MLK was probably one of the few people in the US to be sought after by both the FBI and the KGB. The KGB wanted King to frame his movement as a stance against American imperialism, but King consistently spoke of civil rights as the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the American dream, which just shows you that the KGB didn't understand this concept of the American dream or whatever you want to call it. Um, that, that, uh, that is that us Americans embrace the struggle for a better future, not utopia, but something better. And we are not merely subjects of an all powerful sovereign who will perpetually make our lives just okay. So frustrated with King, the KGB tried to frame him as a puppet of the federal government trying to pacify the civil rights movement to reduce the damage or eliminate the need to guarantee rights through legislation. Of course, the FBI had their own approach to King, but that's a tale for another time. Basically, King's style and message didn't work for the KGB because they wanted the violent elements of racial tensions amplified. Another and much more murky aspect of this is the KGB's infiltration of both the Ku Klux Klan and the Black Panthers. The sources I found to support these claims are uh, are admittedly uh, scant, but each point to more KGB involvement with the Panthers, which I speculate may have been easier for them, uh, easier for the KGB, since um, since the Panthers were uh, had a uh, leftist ideology in common with the Soviets. Evidence of KGB interactions or Yes, interactions or infiltration with the Klan appears elusive, but that's not to say that it didn't happen. In America, civil rights played out against the ever-present backdrop of the Cold War. We've seen the Cold War fleshed out over the last couple episodes, and we definitely have more to discuss on this matter. First, let's check back in with Europe. Berlin was the major hotspot for turbulence and disagreement between East and West. How Germany was divided between zones of occupation dates back to the Tehran Conference in 1943, and there were a lot of different ideas of how to pick apart the carcass of Germany post-war, including ceding territory to Sweden, Poland, and Denmark. Through the subsequent conference in Yalta in 1945, nobody could agree on how to theoretically carve up the country until Germany surrendered. At that point, the Allies split Germany nearly in half, Anglo-American forces from the West and the Soviets from the East. And within the Soviets' occupied territory was Berlin. Germany's occupation would be finalized at the Potsdam Conference in July 1945. In the end, the Allies agreed to split Germany into four occupation zones between the United States, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. And yes, the French delegation was not uh, represented at Potsdam. They got an occupation zone anyway. It's fine. Staying focused on the broad facts here. Um, then Berlin, well within East Germany was also split into four sectors between the aforementioned allied powers. Why would the USSR agree to an island of the West inside the sea of East Germany? As far as I can tell, dividing Berlin was agreed upon at uh, previous conferences before it was clear which army would take Berlin first. The Soviets or the Western, the Western, the Western allies, excuse me. I need a wine break. I know I haven't consumed anything here for a while, but I've got this like pretty sweet red wine that I'm drinking. I, I do prefer, I do prefer dry, but it's, it's what I have. So where was I? 
Okay, so as far as I can tell, dividing Berlin was agreed upon at a previous conference before it was clear which army would take Berlin first. I think I said that. Um, now, Stalin needed to remain on good terms with the Allied uh, Allied powers, still fighting the Japanese in order to gain territorial territorial I could say that word concessions in the Far East. So, sharing Berlin for more territory from China, Korea, and potentially Japan was a good trade for this from the Soviet perspective. Of course, Berlin was a sore spot for both sides. The American and British occupation zones merged into an economic union in 1947 and introduced a new currency, the Deutschmark. In response, the Soviets blockaded the Western occupied zones in Berlin. Remember, Berlin is like miles inside Soviet-held territory. The blockade didn't work because the US and Britain flew supplies uh, to West Berlin over the course of a year, the Berlin airlift. The Soviets wouldn't dare shoot down one of the planes for fear of igniting a war, and the Soviets didn't have the the, the leverage uh, that they needed because, well, they didn't explode an atomic bomb until 1949. So nice try, Stalin. The French occupation zone later joined with the U.S. and Britain's zones and formed the Federal Republic of Germany, or West Germany. The Soviets established their own government called the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany. Don't get too distracted by the words democratic or republic. Because the GDR was a one-party state of communists with a centrally planned economy. In contrast, West Germany and West Berlin formed a democracy and greatly benefited from US economic aid to rebuild West Germany more or less in America's image. And it was very common for ordinary citizens to cross from east to west. East Germany later constructed a wall to keep people in, but we'll get to that a bit later. All of this is to contextualize what was happening in Europe, or specifically in Germany, when Khrushchev took power. He, however, showed willingness to divide Germany further, hence the wall. But Berlin wasn't the only example of Khrushchev's intolerance to some of the changes occurring in Soviet territory. Despite Khrushchev's relatively liberal policies, compared to his predecessors, he had his limits. And both the divided Berlin and the nation of Hungary tested those limits. In the aftermath of World War II, Hungary was absorbed into the Soviet Union. A Stalin loyalist, Matyas Rakosi, was established as Hungary's leader, complete with their very own secret police, yay, the State Protection Authority. When Stalin died, Hungary saw regime change and liberalization under Imre Naj, who favored independence from the Soviet Union. In 1955, Rakosi took power again and used the secret police to brutalize Hungary's spirit of independence, but he didn't last long because the Politburo in Moscow removed Rakosi from his position the following year. Get the hell out of here! Khrushchev's de-Stalinization encouraged Hungary's, uh, uh, Hungarians to openly criticize the Soviet regime and desire improved relations, relationships with the West. Protests against the Soviet government sparked waves of unrest in October 1956, and later active fighting against Soviet troops. Statues of Stalin were torn down. Independence-minded uh, Naj was installed as prime minister. He enacted legislation for free elections, and he also submitted a formal withdrawal from the Warsaw Pact, which, in simple terms, was a, a, a treaty between uh, several Eastern European nations and the rest of the Soviet Union. This was a step too far for Khrushchev because a withdrawn and neutral Hungary was a threat to Moscow. In November 1956, Soviet troops invaded Hungary. Naj requested support from the United uh, from the United Nations, but 
there was no intervention for fear of sparking conflict with the USSR, who, of course, by this point had nuclear weapons. The Soviets put down the revolution within two weeks and installed their own pro-Soviet leader, Yanso Kadar. Naj was caught. <laughs> I'm in danger! And in danger he was, because the Soviets, uh, uh, how do you say, um, uh, sent him uh, on the stairway to heaven by hanging. Ironically, de-Stalinist Khrushchev sent the Soviet, uh, the Soviets' IS series of heavy tanks to squash the Hungarian rebellion. IS is an initialism for Josef Stalin. It's not JS because of the translation from Cyrillic to English letters. While Khrushchev was busy uh, maintaining the Eastern Alliance, the Soviets made tremendous progress in the space race, launching the world's first satellite Sputnik into orbit in October 1957. Later in 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man in outer space, or at least the first to survive the experience. Remarkably, Khrushchev embarked on a journey no Russian leader had ever dared journey before, and it wasn't to space. He visited the United States. Now, how did this happen? In early 1959, Richard Nixon visited the Soviet Union for a tour of the American National Exhibition in Moscow. This exhibition was a display of the American lifestyle, cars, mock kitchens, fashion, and capitalism. It attracted over 3 million people in total over the course of the exhibit's six-week run. During Nixon's trip, he got into a debate with the Soviet premier over their respective economic systems and which was the best. Then, in August 1959, both Washington and Moscow simultaneously, and simultaneously, gosh, if I could talk, b uh, both capitals announced to their respective country folk that Khrushchev would visit America. Here, President Eisenhower announced the visit. In a special White House conference, President Eisenhower reads the text of a joint announcement released simultaneously in Moscow. The President of the United States has invited Mr. Nikito Khrushchev, Chairman of the Council of Ministers of the USSR, to pay an official visit to the United States in September. Khrushchev was determined to display Soviet strength during his tour. This demonstration of power would first be displayed by the premier's aircraft, the Tupolev, or Tu-114. Though the Soviets had few of these aircraft operational, it was the only craft at the time capable of flying nonstop from Moscow to Washington. Notably, Khrushchev's predecessor, Stalin, avoided travel via plane altogether. He hated flying, and instead traveled by armored car, which is on display at the Stalin Museum in Gori, Georgia, if you really want to go and see it. Khrushchev was the first Soviet leader, and I'm fairly positive he was the first Russian leader ever to visit the United States. Sources suggest that no Russian head of state from the Russian Empire, no the Soviet Union, had ever visited the U.S. prior to Khrushchev. I guess it's kind of a redundant statement. Um, various family members of the Russian family made visits in the past, but never the actual czar. So this was historic. He was to start his tour in Washington, then travel to New York City, Los Angeles, Iowa, Pennsylvania, and then back to Washington. Khrushchev's security while traveling across America was substantial, with more men protecting him than any other foreign visitor in history up to that point. The FBI estimated that over 20,000 Americans wished to carry out an assassination attempt, and I have no idea how they came to that figure, especially without 
the, the use of social media, uh, maybe wiretapping. The KGB, however, made an ominous warning. If there was an attempt on Khrushchev's life, even if unsuccessful, the Soviets would respond with an immediate nuclear strike. So that's fun. Oh, wait, wait a second. Were they going to strike us, even if Khrushchev was still in the US? Especially if he was still alive, even in Washington? It seems kind of silly. Khrushchev's security was taken seriously. For example, his chair and food at the mayor's lunch in Manhattan were both swept with a Geiger counter before he even arrived. One of the biggest blunders on part of the Americans was not letting Khrushchev go to Disneyland. He was supposed to visit the House of Mouse, but was, de but was denied for security reasons. Even Walt Disney, a famous anti-communist, was prepared to receive the premiere. Listen to Disney tell it himself. In, in my knowledge, there's only been one adult who's uh, been refused permission to the park. No, we didn't refuse him permission. No, we were all set. You see, we work according to what the State Department wants to do. When they come in, they, they, uh, they have guests. If he's, uh, Khrushchev was a guest of the government. So, I mean, we were ready to receive Khrushchev. But it so happened that uh, the security problem here in Los Angeles, because actually Disneyland is in another county, you see, and the chief of police, we can't blame him, he had, a, he had, he had quite a, a chore there to carry out. He just uh, was, was a little worried about uh, somebody maybe walking in Disneyland with a shopping bag and what they might have in it, he was never able to know, you know? Exactly. Yeah. But we were ready for him, the press was ready, the, uh, both the State Department security and the Soviet security had come and cased Disneyland and they were all set. And I was all ready, and uh, in fact, uh, we've had a lot of dignitaries down there. And, I should and say. He, he was one that Mrs. Disney wanted to go down and meet, was Khrushchev. Of course, Khrushchev was not happy about being denied entry to the park. During the tour, Khrushchev was allowed to mingle amongst ordinary Americans and shake hands to appear less like a scary Soviet dictator and more like a human being. Something like a smiling, kindly old man doing normal things like trying American foods. Remember, this was the same guy who declared that, quote, we will bury you to Western ambassadors nearly three years earlier. But that was likely a mistranslation. Frenzies of the American press snapped photos of him like any other jovial celebrity. In line with Khrushchev's habit of edgy speeches, he didn't miss a chance to go on long and bombastic tirades whenever he felt insulted or felt the need to defend the Soviet system. But just now, right before my speech, I was told, no, you can't go and see such and such town. What's the name of that place? Disneyland. Yeah, that's it. So I ask, why not? And they tell me, you see, you can't go there, just you listen. Just you listen to this, just listen to what I've been told. You can't go there because we, the American authorities, cannot guarantee your safety there. Now let me ask you, what is happening there? Is there a cholera or plague outbreak? And if I go there, I will get sick? Or maybe bandits seize Disneyland and they will kill me if I appear there? I really, really wanted to see that place, but now I can't. And I just find it kind of odd that they denied him to go to Disneyland for security reasons, yet he's there's plenty of footage out there, of, especially on YouTube. I mean, you can look this up, of him just in crowds shaking hands. I mean, these things, these are the kind of situations he's in that would make the Secret Service sweat. And uh, they let this guy into these crowds and shake hands, despite the fact that they got this warning, basically a nuclear threat 
from the KGB if something happened to him. So I don't I don't really understand that. But anyway, perhaps Khrushchev's favorite leg of the of the trip was was in Iowa where he met an old acquaintance and fellow pornographer, Roswell Garst. And by pornographer, I mean corn farmer. Khrushchev loved corn. Garst visited the Soviet Union about four years earlier as an agricultural expert on corn. Garst met Khrushchev and sold about 5,000 tons of special hybrid seed corn, making himself very wealthy. Khrushchev, the undisputed king of corn, met with his, quote, best American friend at Garst's ranch. Garst himself flew into a rage at the mob of reporters trampling his crop. After leaving Iowa, Khrushchev headed back to Washington to conclude his U.S. tour and meet with President Eisenhower at Camp David. The hope was that the premier would be easier to negotiate major Cold War issues with after bearing witness to the American people, American power, and wealth. During our talks at Camp David, Eisenhower would repeatedly tell me, Mr. Khrushchev, I really want to come to an agreement with you on these burning issues. I would answer him, Mr. President, it would make me very happy as well. But at the same time I knew, how could we come to an agreement? The positions of our two countries at the time stood in such extreme opposition to each other. The conditions simply weren't ripe yet for us to come to an agreement on pretty much anything. And to be perfectly frank, I never had any illusions that I would come to America, would have a talk, and all of the world's problems would magically disappear. What kind of a daydream is that? Moscow wasn't built in a day, you know? This strategy wasn't very effective since neither Eisenhower nor Khrushchev came to any agreement on Berlin's occupation nor nuclear disarmament to name a few issues. But the two superpower leaders became more acquainted with one another, which was important. They shared meals, took walks, watched movies, you know, normal people stuff that I think helped break the ice a bit. Eisenhower was even invited to the Soviet Union the following spring. For a brief time after Khrushchev's visit, Cold War tensions diminished slightly, and both the American and Soviet propaganda machines conveyed optimism about forging new and friendly relations between the superpowers. But this was just the calm before the storm. In October 1960, Khrushchev castigated Filipino delegation Lorenzo Sumo Long for being a lackey and sycophant for American imperialism in front of the UN General Assembly, where he supposedly, but probably not, slammed a shoe on the desk. In May 1962, a U-2 spy plane was shot down over the Soviet Union and Francis Gary Powers was arrested by the KGB. Khrushchev did not take the news well. He'd spent time with Eisenhower and felt stabbed in the back. Khrushchev went on the offensive, first by canceling Eisenhower's upcoming trip. And after this, oh my dear God, Eisenhower wants to come here? I don't understand this. I just don't. Is he clueless or what? It's pretty straightforward from my point of view. You don't eat where you shit. It's that simple. It's not that hard to understand, you know? The president took a dump in the Soviet Union, and now he wants to come to me to Khrushchev for a dinner. But how can I be a host to him after what he did to me? Next, Khrushchev denounced Eisenhower at a General Assembly of the United Nations in New York. It was around this time that he met Fidel Castro and set a course for likely the most dangerous point of the Cold War and the closest the world has ever been to nuclear conflict. Cuba emerged from socialist revolution in early 1959, and Fidel Castro was propelled to power. At first, Moscow paid little mind to Cuba since it's in the Western Hemisphere, but Castro was a star of radical socialism, 
and the Soviets could not pass on the opportunity to make their first Red Alliance in the West, and so close to the United States. In April 1961, President John F. Kennedy approved an invasion of Cuba using about 1,400 Cuban exiles and CIA support, launched from the Bay of Pigs. The Kennedy administration hoped to spark popular uprising in Cuba to topple Castro, but instead the Bay of Pigs was an utter failure and tarnished Kennedy's image. Was this a matter of spreading communism close to America's shores? Not necessarily. See, the Soviet Union had few options when it came to deploying nuclear weapons. They could threaten Berlin for sure, but had limited capability to strike the US directly with Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, or ICBMs. The US, however, put the Soviets in check with nuclear missiles and air bases with nuclear-capable B-52s and B-47s, strategically placed in Great Britain, Italy, and crucially, Turkey. At least 15 medium-range Jupiter missiles were stationed in Turkey, capable of striking Moscow, St. Petersburg, and virtually the rest of the most populated parts of Russia. Despite warnings from U.S. Air Force General and Supreme Commander in Europe, Loris Norstad, that such a move would provoke the Soviets. Now, to be fair, the fact that American missiles were stationed in Turkey was widely downplayed until the resolution of the crisis, at least in my history education in middle and high school. It's treated like one day the U.S. was minding its own red, white, and blue business, and suddenly the Russians put nukes in Cuba, as if that were an isolated act of aggression. The act was aggressive, yes, and it was a link in a series of wider diplomatic and military steps along the path of the Cold War. What I find more interesting, and I admit, unfortunately, I couldn't find a source to back this up, uh, is that from a crude analysis, it appears that regular Soviet people did not panic about missiles in Turkey. That doesn't mean that they weren't concerned or scared, like us Americans were about Cuba. But us Americans do not have much experience with direct threats or, uh, or to our nation as the Russians do, or compared to the Russians. I speculate the novelty of the threat made us panic. Khrushchev suggested Americans should have a taste of their own medicine. Some Americans panic bought canned food and other supplies in case of nuclear apocalypse. And this was a time when people installed fallout shelters in their backyards. Here in the States, ask anybody old enough like my past teachers, or my mom for that matter, who can vividly remember the Cuban Missile Crisis and the sense of impending doom that that, that they felt. I, I mean, kids were learning duck and cover. Any Gen Z listening to this show may not know this, but they used to tell people in the event of nuclear war to hide under your school desk, and I'm not even making this up. As if desks were lead-lined, but a kid under a desk in a nuclear blast would have a snowflake's chance in hell of surviving. Now, there are a few events leading up to the crisis that are worth discussing. One, Kennedy and Khrushchev met in Vienna to exchange warnings over the status of post-war Berlin. 
and Kennedy and Khrushchev could not have been any more different. Kennedy, a young man from a wealthy family, and Khrushchev, an old Soviet who started as an un uneducated metal worker. But both saw the very real horrors of World War II, since they both served in the war. Two, that diplomatic conflict in Vienna manifested into physical division with the construction of the Berlin Wall starting in August of 1961. In October 1961, the Soviets detonated the largest ever nuclear device, the Tsar Bomba, or King Bomb. A 50 to 58 megaton monster exploded on the island of Novonyazimla in northern Russia. Fat Man, the bomb dropped on Nagasaki, had a yield of 21 kilotons and a mushroom cloud that reached about 20,000 feet. Modern airliners cruise at about 35,000 feet. The mushroom cloud from the Tsar Bomba reached over 200,000 feet in the air. This thing was stupid large. Ambient light from the, from the fireball was visible in Norway and Greenland. Atmospheric and seismic shockwaves circled Earth three times, as measured by stations, mo stations monitoring atmospheric pressure in Wellington. In New Zealand, this was a massive display of firepower, but the Soviets lacked the strategic advantage as I described. Still, the Soviets needed a checkmate on the United States, and their newfound ally in Cuba fit the bill. Khrushchev ordered the shipment of ballistic missiles to Cuba. Many, if not most, were transported via cargo ship. In September 1962, a U-2 spy plane photographed evidence of medium or intermediate SS-4 ballistic missiles installed on Cuba. Once operational, the Soviets could strike about half the uh, half of the U.S., including most of the East Coast. Kennedy and his advisors scrambled to gather a list of options in response. Missiles this close to American shores were both a military problem and a political problem. Kennedy partly ran on the platform of containing communism, and voters would, of course, punish Kennedy for putting them in danger. But there was more bad news. New aerial reconnaissance showed new, long-range SS-5 ballistic missile sites. These SS-5 missiles had a range of about 2,200 nautical miles. The Soviets were ready to turn Nevada into glass and Iowa into popcorn. Almost every major city in the entire US was, if, was within range, except Seattle. Kennedy needed to act fast, but what to do? An option that included direct strikes of Soviet-held installations in Cuba likely meant escalation and nuclear war, especially considering that approximately 40 to 50,000 Soviet troops were already stationed on the island, and about 150 nuclear warheads were at least transported, if not armed and ready. Kennedy chose a middle road, blockade Cuba, to prevent additional Soviet weapons and material. He also quietly ordered the mobilization of the U.S. military. Then Kennedy addressed the nation. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The Cubans prepared for war by fortifying defensive positions along the beaches in Havana and Castro called upon every able-bodied male to fight if necessary. The US military was put on DEFCON 2, one step away from all-out nuclear war, and approximately quarter million US troops were mobilized to Florida and Georgia. Anti-aircraft guns took positions on Florida beaches. 
troops were airlifted to Guantanamo Bay, and Marines practiced amphibious landings in preparation to invade Cuba. If the U.S. went through with invading Cuba, it is likely Khrushchev would have retaliated in Berlin. Nobody was screwing around here, and there was a growing feeling in the White House that war was inevitable. To add fuel to the fire, a U-2 spy plane, again with the downed U-2s, was shot down over Cuba by a Soviet surface-to-air missile, and the pilot, Major Rudolf Anderson, died in the incident, and he appears to have been the only fatality in this crisis. To me, one of the scariest things about this tense situation was that anybody could have made a mistake, or some dickhead rogue sergeant could have become overexcited and triggered, triggered nuclear war. For example, a Soviet submarine crew, believing they were under attack, nearly fired a nuclear torpedo at an American ship, and likely would have if it weren't for Vasily Arkhipov, the naval officer who refused to give launch authorization because he listened to his gut and knew the Americans did not start war. Things were heating up. This was not good. But where was the KGB during all this? The short answer is they kept back channels open. At 1475 Pennsylvania Avenue, across the street from the U.S. Treasury Department, there is a small restaurant called The Occidental. At a booth, KGB station chief in Washington, Alexander Formin, real name Alexander Feklasov, met with ABC journalist John Scully on two separate occasions. Why did a KGB agent contact a journalist? Scully was a diplomatic reporter in high places. He even stood adjacent to Nixon and Khrushchev during their famous kitchen debate over which was better, capitalism or communism. And Scully went on to become the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations later in his career. Feklasov contacted Scully shortly after Kennedy's address to the nation. At lunch, Scully explained that Kennedy was dead serious about invading Cuba, especially since the army pushed for a military solution. Feklasov then proposed what would eventually become the basis for a solution to the crisis. The Soviet Union would remove the missiles from Cuba in exchange for the U.S. removing missiles in Turkey. Iskali and Feklasov returned to their respective sides in this conflict. The deal had to be approved through the proper channels, but then Khrushchev publicly announced he would recall the missiles from Cuba. The world let out a sigh of relief. If you go to the Occidental today, there is a commemorative plaque that reads, quote, at this table during the tense moments of the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962, a Russian offer to withdraw missiles from Cuba was passed by the mysterious Mr. X to ABC TV correspondent John Scully. On the basis of this meeting, the threat of a possible nuclear war was avoided, end quote. Not everyone was happy with this arrangement. Fidel Castro, for one, had no seat at the table for these negotiations, and Cuba was at considerable risk for invasion and potentially strikes with tactical nukes to halt an American invasion. In the Soviet Union, Khrushchev's time in the Kremlin was limited. In October 1964, while Khrushchev was on vacation in Georgia, Leonid Brezhnev took control of the party and the KGB backed him up as opposition to Khrushchev. An example of how the KGB got involved in the Kremlin's power struggles. Khrushchev was ordered to return to Moscow. There was no show trial, no military coup, and unlike in times past, Khrushchev was allowed to live. He simply resigned his position and was forced into a quiet retirement until his death on September 11th, 1971. So let's do a recap on these last three episodes. Khrushchev came to power after an epic power struggle with NKVD chief Lavrenti Beria and sidelined Georgi Malenkov. 
he almost immediately embarked on liberalizing reforms and a campaign of de-Stalinization, which sought to expose Stalin for the tyrant he was, reduce political arrests, suppress Stalin's cult of personality, and even have his dead, embalmed body removed from Lenin's mausoleum. In a secret speech to the party congress, Khrushchev denounced his former master. On March 13, 1954, the KGB was officially formed and led by Ivan Serov. The KGB engaged in global espionage from Europe, Asia, Africa, and Latin America, gathering allies in developing nations like India, Angola, and Cuba. The KGB and their array of cool gadgets performed spycraft professionally, with some spies going decades without detection until another KGB agent defected and spilled the Russian tea. The KGB was probably best at infiltration, a tactic we've seen almost all Russian secret police employ from the third section to the Okhrana and onwards. On a global stage, conflict arose with the West. Moscow's lighter hand encouraged revolts against the Soviet system in places like Hungary, where, despite reforms, Khrushchev halted them with brutality. Germany was split in two, and Berlin, deep inside East Germany, was split between the Soviet Union and the Allies. The Soviets started construction on a wall in August 1961 to separate the two sides. Despite the simultaneous duet of repression and reform, the Soviets made incredible scientific achievements in space exploration by successfully launching both Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin. Furthermore, Khrushchev became the first Russian head of state to visit the United States and tour coast to coast. He was denied access to Disneyland, and that made him pretty pissed off. We damn near obliterated ourselves during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was the closest the US and the Soviet Union came to nuclear war up until that point in the conflict. KGB agent Alexander Feklasov and ABC correspondent John Scully, both acting on behalf of their respective, respective uh, governments, brokered a deal in which removing Soviet missiles from Cuba would be exchanged for American missiles in Turkey. What a wild time this was in geopolitics. When thinking about the early Cold War compared to today, there are some things I am hopeful for and things I am thankful for. For one, thank your god of choice that social media wasn't around during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm not sure we would have made it through, what with deepfakes, doom scrolling, and panic tweeting. It's much easier to spread mass panic these days. I mean, it seems like some people buy into the panic or maybe they're afraid of missing out or they have genuine fears. So they have this lizard brain urge to participate in the hype. Second, I'm hopeful that in our current state of affairs that cooler heads will prevail and there are more Vasily Arkhipovs out there than commanders hell-bent on starting a nuclear war. And, and that's all I'm going to say on current events because we have a lot more of that coming. While researching this episode, I couldn't help but think about how well-refined Russian secret police had become. I think the NKVD really set the standard for what the secret police could be at home and abroad, but the KGB perfected it. And certainly they were more successful in branding, if you even want to call it that. Probably most people will say, huh, what? When you bring up the NKVD out of context, but mention the, uh, mention the KGB and people know what you're saying. KGB is kind of a colloquialism for spies. So anyway, thank you so much for lending me your ears, minds, and time. I really hope you enjoyed this one. If you'd like to engage more with the show, follow my socials. Also, if you prefer this format where the long episodes are broken up, um, or if you prefer the long format, let me know. I I'm available for chit-chat. Twitter at hush underscore popo, Instagram at secret police podcast, 
You can also support me on Patreon where you can find bonus content generated with ChatGPT. Meet other like-minded community members like yourself who also have a problem with authority and have exclusive access to behind the scenes. If you don't feel comfortable with supporting me on a monthly basis, you can go to secretpolicepodcast.com and donate via the PayPal link at the very bottom of the page. All donations are used to keep the lights on around here. Uh, That is pay for a website and podcast hosting. In a few weeks, we will pick back up with a KGB under Brezhnev. Please don't place missiles in Cuba or Turkey. Enjoy all the corn you want. Agents dismissed.